So this is from Diane Ackerman, who's a naturalist essayist from her book, A Natural History of Love. As a society, we are embarrassed by love. We treat it as if it were an obscenity. We reluctantly admit to it, even saying the word makes us stumble and blush. Love's the most important thing in our lives, a passion for which we would die and fight for. And yet we're reluctant to linger over its names. Without a supple vocabulary, we can't even talk or think about it directly. So this talk tonight is an attempt to talk about love, but more Buddhist style than perhaps she was intending. So I'm, I'm going to talk about metta as a heart quality and the way that we practice with it and the way it evolves through our practice. So I was just writing my own definition of metta, and I came up with this. A natural quality of connectedness, kindness, spontaneous happiness, well-wishing feeling, or any version thereof for self and others that's already inside us and we often forget about, but can be cultivated and deepened. <laughs> that's a long translation of a little word. I was thinking I'd put it in Wikipedia, see what happens. Anyway, it might grow and grow and grow. So metta, there's so many things to say about metta. There's so much to say about the practice itself. And as some of you know, there are whole retreats devoted to metta. So this is going to be you know, just a portion of it, particularly as it relates to ourselves and developing metta for ourselves in our practice. So how does it relate to the Vipassana practice? Now, it's often talked about that one holistic way of looking at our practice is that the, the analogy is used, the wings of a bird, that one wing is compassion and one wing is wisdom or kindness, loving kindness and wisdom, and that the bird needs both of those wings to fly. And you can imagine a one-winged bird is not going to get very far. So this is more the development of the cultivation of this, this, um, this side of the bird you know, that's inherent in our practice because mindfulness has the quality of metta in it in a certain kind of way. Mindfulness, when we talk about mindfulness, sometimes we call it this non-judgmental present time awareness, deliberate awareness. And when we talk about non-judgmental, the quality of heart we're bringing to mind is, is an accepting quality, an openness. And that acceptance is also loving kindness. So in some ways, the, the metta and the loving kindness are like the reverse of each other. And it's like bringing one to the foreground. I'm sorry, the, the metta and the mindfulness. So we do the mindfulness practice. We're focusing more on the being in the present moment, the development of the wisdom side. Whereas the loving-kindness, it's developing more of the heart practice. And yet there's also mindfulness inherent in metta. So they're really deeply connected. We can also see that as we begin to tap into that state of awareness that Carol was talking about last night, that with inherent in that natural quality of awareness are often, is often metta. There's often qualities of appreciation and joy that come as, we, as our awareness deepens and as we simply rest in that state. So even though they're different practices and they cultivate different things in some ways, they're intimately connected. And some people find that they like to do a lot of metta practice. Some people find that they hate to do a lot of metta practice. Um, you know, we're all in different places in relation to this practice. I know when I first started it, I hated it. I thought it was kind of nauseating, actually. <laughs> and um, it shifted over time for me. It actually took many years before I even could try it in a way that I felt connected to it. So I would do it a lot, a bit rote, just I would say it, I would say it, oh, nothing's happening, all right, forget it. I was also, in that time, really loving the Vipassana practice. I was finding myself drawn, completely pulled into the, the qualities of clarity and the luminosity of mind that was coming as I would practice Vipassana. So it just seemed like, oh, this little side practice, I'll try it some other time, maybe. But then I really began to practice it, and I'll say more in a bit. 
So the big question is, what do you want your mind to be like? You have a choice here. You can have a mind that's filled with greed and hating and complaining and anxiety and fear and all those things. Or you can have a mind that's filled with kindness and compassion and ease and peace and well-being. This is the answer to the question, why do we practice metta? Why should we even bother? And it's not that we don't have this habitual patterns that arise in our mind. It's not that there aren't times when we have, you know, just because of all of our conditioning, hatred arises, fear arises, anxiety arises. Of course it does. But we have an opportunity in every moment to shift our minds. It's really quite amazing. And I hear it again and again with you all on this retreat. I hear stories of, okay, I was, I was in the shower and I was just thinking about my boss and I was so mad at her and I was thinking about it, thinking about stressing. And suddenly I realized, wow, she must be really suffering to be so mean. And then my heart shifted and I felt open and compassionate. You know, it happens in a second. The shift from being contracted and closed down to being open and spacious and feeling connected, it can happen in a second. One of the reasons we do metta is to cultivate more and more opportunities of this to happen. Sometimes people do metta as a specific practice, usually done on longer retreats, where there, it's, it's called a jhana, or absorption practice. And when you do metta, this is a wonderful practice where your mind gets very, very subtle. And in these states, one accesses states that our mind sort of absorbs or gets concentrated around. <laughs> Who is it this time? Same. <laughs> so, um, where was I? <laughs> I? I'm totally, I can't remember what I was talking about. <laughs> Sorry, okay. I think I was talking about the way that our minds, um, can access through this through this particular practice deep states of consciousness, and this is a very valuable practice. This is not so much what most of us are doing on short retreats. On shorter retreats, we might start doing metta because we have sessions of metta. We might do it because we think it's a good, or our teacher recommends it, that it would be helpful for dealing with difficulties that are arising. And in this case, it's a kind of practice, like an antidote to the difficulties in our hearts and minds, like lots of self-hatred. We can do metta as an antidote to that. Or it's seen as a purification practice, which Adrian mentioned, and I'll talk about a little bit more. So I know Mark mentioned this, but I think you can never hear it enough, the, the way in which so many of us struggle with self-hatred. It's such a pernicious thing in this culture. It's constant. And we see it through the media. We see it the way we've been conditioned, our families. And we get to retreat. We shut off all the distractions. And there it is in living color. You stupid jerk. You didn't get to the meal on time. I hate when I did that. That person looks so much better than me. I'm, I mean, it's endless. It really can be quite endless. And if we let anybody else talk to ourselves, talk to us the way we talk to ourselves, it would be completely unacceptable. You would never let anyone do it, but we do it. We talk this way to ourselves. Metta can transform self-hatred. Metta can. I like to think of working with self-hatred as using two different modalities that kind of come together. And one is working at it with the mindfulness. So the first is you become very vigilant of the thinking. So when a thought arises, God, that was a stupid thing to do. Oh, self-judgment won. You know, and then it happens again. Gosh, I ate so much food, I look like such a pig. You know, self-judgment too. Or you, can, you, you don't have to count it, but you can note it. Labeling these self-judgments can be tremendously helpful in giving yourself a little space around what you do. 
you notice that the mind has these habitual reactions. It continues to do it. We don't know why. We've internalized a lot of these messages, but we, we often judge ourselves. So learning to have a relationship with our thoughts where we get a little bit of space, either by labeling them, self-judgment or self-criticism or punishing myself or whatever it is that really you connect with. And keep in mind when you use labels or notes that you want to connect with the note, that you don't want to um, pick something that doesn't make sense to you or that it seems abstract. You want that word to make sense with the experience. So labeling them, counting counting each time that occurs can be quite helpful. Every time you notice a lot of self-judgment, it's often helpful to sense into your body What is happening in this moment? What am I feeling? Oh, there's a contraction in my belly and my heart and it's burning and it hurts. Giving yourself the space with a kind of accepting awareness is tremendously helpful in the midst of these attacks of self-judgment. Recognizing it's just a thought. It's It's, oftentimes we get confused. We think thoughts are real. Well, most of the time we think thoughts are real. Have you ever seen the bumper sticker, don't believe everything you think? It's a good one. It's a really good one because we do. We often believe everything we think. And um, I was just talking to a teenager recently, and she said, I said, does anyone know that bumper sticker? What do you think it means? And she said, well, I think it means if you take a test and you fail and you call yourself a stupid idiot, you shouldn't believe it. I said, that's a good example. It's a really good example. So you translate that into grown-up lives. You know, when do we do that? When do we believe thoughts that only cause suffering? As we can begin to see thoughts with more space, and we'll be talking about thoughts in the next couple of days, we begin to have a quality of disidentification or not taking those thoughts so personally, not being so caught in them. It's really just one simple way of translating it is more space. Disidentification as more space. There's a part of you, it may see yourself doing this, oh, that was such a stupid thing, oh, I'm a failure, oh, I'm whatever it is. And yet there's another part of your mind that's like, huh, that was an interesting thought. Okay, self-judgment. So when we're working with self-judgment, I'm saying it's a two-part process. There's this working with it through noticing it, being vigilant, particularly if it's very strong. You have to be somewhat vigilant about it, but then be careful of... I wasn't vigilant enough. That was so stupid. <laughs> you, know? you have to be careful of that, that tendency. So, so the other piece is, it's more about what I sometimes call changing the ground of our being. And this is where the loving kindness, the metta, comes in. I spent eight years working in a nonprofit, and I left the nonprofit, and I was so exhausted. I was so completely overwhelmed and burnt out. And I went on a retreat and I decided to do metta practice. And I did a month of metta and I did it just for me. And as you've been taught over these days, there's many different people um, that you can do metta for. You can do it for yourself, for a benefactor, for a neutral person and so on. There's many people you can do it for. But every time I would try to turn my attention to someone else, my heart would just say, "Uh uh-uh, you stay with yourself. And so I just kept sending the loving kindness, sending the loving kindness. And I would get to these places, oh, God, I'm exhausted, I'm overwhelmed, I'm burnt out, and I just keep sending it to myself. And it became like a bomb, like a healing bomb for this part of me that was so burnt and disconnected and unhappy. And I could feel the shit. It was the best vacation I ever had. Really, I mean, I was more rested and rejuvenated than I'd ever been because I was so burnt out. So doing metta, especially for oneself, can be tremendously beneficial. So as we do, we work with the vigilance with the thoughts, and then we also work with the cultivation of a new way of perceiving ourselves, perceiving ourselves with this attitude of love and well-being. This is a quote from uh, Bell Hooks. When I talked with friends and acquaintances about self-love, I was surprised to see how many of us feel troubled by the notion, 
as though the very idea implies too much narcissism or selfishness. We all need to rid ourselves once and for all of misguided notions about self-love. We need to stop fearfully equating it with self-centeredness and selfishness. Self-love is the foundation of our loving practice, and without it, other efforts to love fail. Other efforts to love fail without loving ourselves. And I'm sure you've heard the quote of the Buddha, you can search the whole world over and find no one as worthy of love as yourself. This is very profound teaching, especially in a culture that, you know, people are so afraid, I'm I'm being narcissistic, or if you're the kind of person that needs to take care of everybody else, but forgets about this one right here. So the reminder is to bring metta in, loving kindness in as a healing balm. One of my friends um, and colleagues who I work with, I work at UCLA at a mindfulness center, is studying what he calls interpersonal neurobiology. And he's been very interested in issues of what's called secure attachment and the relationship to mindfulness. And what this is, and I'm going to explain it very simply, mostly because I don't understand the full complexity of it, but it's that as a child is growing, it needs a, cert- a child needs a certain kind of attachment and bonding and being mirrored and seen by his or her parents in order to develop, actually develop parts of the brain that allow for like a healthy, self-adjusted life. What they're discovering is that as we, uh, if you can get that, if you didn't get that mirroring in childhood, you can get it in other ways. And one of the ways is a, a relationship with a good therapist, for instance, where you're, where you're mirrored, where there's a secure attachment it's sort of that's replicated in that relationship. But what's now what's so interesting is being seen through all this, right now there's so much interest in brain science and research, is that, that when we meditate, we're actually replicating the same structures in the brain as when, um, as the secure attachment. So this part of the brain is called the prefrontal cortex, and it's responsible for things like emotional regulation and flexibility of thinking and non-reactivity and logic. And it's, um, it's actually shown, the scientists have been showing that in long-term meditators, it's thicker than normal people. <laughs> now, I don't know how long you have to meditate to get your prefrontal cortex to get, but, um, but it's just so interesting because what it's really saying, and this is what, um, what Dan Siegel, who's written a book called The Mindful Brain, has been saying, is that essentially through the practice of mindfulness, we can be our own best friend. We can do to ourselves what we may not have gotten in childhood we can enhance it if we did get it in childhood, and we are becoming more and more of a sort of creating healthy brains in the process. So it's very, very interesting to think of the implications for mindfulness, for bringing loving kindness, for changing the states of our brain. So how do we practice it? You've been getting some teachings over time, and what I, I'm going to focus more on um, just the way it works as we begin by sending it to ourselves. People sometimes ask, "How much should I do it? You know, just that one session? Should I do it more times during the day?" And it's really, it kind of is, it depends on each person. If you feel drawn to it, you can do it more. That you could do one session, two sessions, three sessions. If you feel really drawn to it. Some people do five minutes to start the sitting or five minutes to end the sitting. Some people do it in the morning, in the evening. It's really, it's really up to you. Some people find that they want to do it, they feel very drawn to it, and they think it could be quite helpful. And so in that case, if you feel like you want to be doing it more, more frequently, you, you, know, you can talk with the teacher you're interviewing with and see if it's a good direction for you to go in. So we, the way we teach it here is we teach is we invite you to find phrases, phrases that work for you. And that's actually can be quite a process. I knew for years I was saying that we taught you some of the traditional phrases. For years I would say those and they never really resonated with me. 
And so I had to work at it until I found phrases that made sense in my heart. And so I sort of would try one, and I'd go, oh, not right. And then I'd try another, and I would just keep adapting the words until I came up with four phrases that worked for me. And I'll tell you what the phrases I use. I say, may I, be, may I have strength in my body and mind? May I have ease in my being? May I accept myself as I am? And may I be free? And that accept myself as I am has been really key, okay? <laughs> Just to say that, the, the bringing in the quality of equanimity, that ease, that balance of mind in the midst, because sometimes we do, and I'll talk about this in a sec, but oftentimes we do loving kindness and we don't feel loving kindness. So if we can also bring in some equanimity, may I accept this as I am, may I accept me as I am, it can be tremendously helpful with this practice. So I like to use this little acronym for working with it. So we come up with our phrases. And in the beginning, if you don't have phrases, that's okay. You can just sort of try with the, what we say here. And you can use the ones that are written out there on the board. You can come up with your own. Um, but I use sort of a four-part little acronym. And it's C-E-N-E. So the C is contact. You make contact with the image of the person or your sense or feel of the person that you're working on. In this case, we'll be talking about mostly ourselves. So you make contact. And with yourself, you just want to sort of sense into your body. And you can contact, just have a sense of kind of sitting your, setting your intention to make contact. The E is encourage. And encourage is using the phrases, using words that help you cultivate. May I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be at ease. The N is notice. So C, contact. E, encourage. N, notice, which means feel the feeling in your body and notice the impact. Notice what happens when you do this. And then finally, the, the, the last thing is E, which I'll talk about in a second, expand. And later on, that means expand out to other categories. So we contact the feeling. We begin to, um, to, to say phrases. And you may find that actually for some people, the phrases don't really work. You know, They may not make sense to you, or they may not make, help you connect with it. There's other teachers that teach metta in different ways. And so, for instance, the extremely... Um, esteemed Thai nun, Ayakema, who passed away several years ago, she teaches metta as a form of visualization. So rather than saying words, she, sa- she has you imagine metta as there's a fountain in your heart, and it's spraying loving kindness in all directions, or there's a jewel inside your heart, and it's many-faceted, and in each facet there's kindness and compassion and care. Or this great lake that just expands as you jump into a lake of metta. And the reason I'm telling you this, because although we're teaching it this other way, if you're finding that the phrases don't feel so connecting, but some kind of image or picture or something that helps you to connect with it, that can be very helpful. So sometimes people feel some light, or they see light or color, or it feels like water or something. If that helps you connect, and as you encourage, it evokes more metta, then it's a great way to practice. We can also use ourselves as a small child. We can imagine that, it's a, that if, as we're trying to send it to ourselves, if we can't, we can imagine that a loved one is sending it to us. So, so in a sense, I see metta as a tremendously creative practice to let you find the way in which you connect with this feeling. The importance is to make contact with it, encourage it, notice the impact. And that noticing, it's like you drop a rock into a pond and all of the ripples happen. All of the ripples happen inside yourself and you notice that impact. And then you let it grow and then you let it expand. 
And particularly when you're working on yourself, it may the feeling may strengthen, it may weaken, it may grow, it may change. All sorts of things can happen. And that's actually one of the things that's quite interesting about metta. So sometimes you give it a try and <clears throat> nothing happens. Or you didn't feel anything. So what do you do? Give up? You have, there's a couple of choices. I, I guess you have four choices. I was going to say you have three choices, but giving up would be the fourth choice. Um, the first choice is that you can keep going, especially, especially if nothing is happening. Um, it's often helpful just to keep trying it, to see what happens in the spirit of, spirit of experimentation and then the spirit of what Jack was talking about with growing a garden, planting the seeds, Letting, just seeing what happens. I'll just keep saying it. I don't know if it's working. I have no idea, but I'll try it. And there's an old story about one of our friends and teachers, Sharon Salzberg, who did a retreat where for a week she practiced metta, and the whole time nothing really happened, she, she said, and she just got pretty discouraged. And later she went home, and she was in her house, and she had this glass, and she something happened, she dropped it, and just fell on the floor. And the first voice in her head said, you're such a klutz. And the second voice in her head said, but I love you anyway. <laughs> so she, she was completely surprised by the second voice. So there's a way there's something quite mysterious that happens with the loving kindness. We really don't know how it's affecting us on a deep level, even if at times it feels a little kind of rote or dry or nothing's happening. So that's one thing you can do. If you're practicing it, not much is happening. Now, if what happens is you start doing it and all these other things happen, you start to feel other feelings. You feel rage, you feel numbness, you feel fear, you feel you know, the whole gamut, grief, great grief, all these things happen as we do this practice. And I'll go into it in a moment, why this happens. We can at that point in the practice shift over to the mindfulness. So sense what's going on in your body. We talked today about working with emotions. What's happening in our body when, we're, um, when we start to feel the grief or the anxiety? We let ourselves sense in, and through the bringing in that mindfulness practice, see what happens. Just get very curious about the experience. And then it may happen that there's some disidentification or some space that begins to occur. And then as you start to feel a little more grounded and centered, you can go back to the metta phrases or the metta generation. A third thing that you can do is if you start to feel sadness or grief or rage or any of these things, is turn the metta on that part of you that's feeling those things. So it's kind of like a jujitsu move or something. Like, and so I'm feeling all the sadness and I can't do metta. Hey, wait a minute. I could feel, sad. I could feel metta for myself for feeling sadness. And it's quite interesting when, you see, when you're able to do that and you see what happens. You can do it to yourself as a child. You can do it for that part of your body that's feeling the sadness or whatever it's feeling. Sometimes the metta field becomes so strong that as we just keep saying it and feeling the metta for ourselves, the difficulties just begin to dissolve. It's quite amazing. It's like raising the level of loving ourselves. You know, it's really low for a lot of us. And we just keep increasing, increasing, increasing. This is from Derek Walcott. It's a poem called Love After Love. The time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself, arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, Give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you've ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit. Feast on your life.
So why is this happening that we sit down to do metta and we have all these intentions of creating this beautiful, loving feeling and we want to be good and compassionate and kind and we have all these feelings and instead all we feel is numb and pissed off? Why? Because this practice, it's, it's, in some ways, it's sort of meant to cultivate that in a sense. No, it's not really... It's meant to cultivate the, the kindness, but the process of cultivating it is, as we call it, a purification practice. It's this slow unlayering of the heart. The reason you feel grief is that you get to see all the ways that you couldn't love yourself or love another if you're doing it for someone else. You, so I really want to get rid of the notion that we're supposed to be feeling metta, or our, our version of what we think metta is. But actually, when the practice becomes interesting is when you get to see everything that's in the way. It's like the places where we're not loved, they're kind of coming up for air. That's sort of how I see it. And then what begins to happen as we do this practice over time, and I want to say also this happens in the insight practice, in the vipassana that we're doing. We're often going through these phases or these cycles of practice where we're feeling open and spacious, we're feeling loving. And then this happens to me all the time when I'm practicing. I'm feeling open and spacious. This happens in life too. I'm feeling loving, connected, happy, joyous, and then boom, something comes up where I can't be that way anymore. Something comes up, so then what do I do? I practice with it. So you're in these spaces. So this is what happens throughout the whole insight practice, throughout the metta practice. We're in these spaces of open awareness. We connect into what Carol was talking about last night, where our mind just sees, oh, it's just this play of awareness. Wow. Okay, no big deal. And then the next thing we know, God, I'm hungry, and I really want this kind of food, and I can't believe I can't get coffee. And you know, I mean, that's what, that's what our mind does. It goes in and out constantly. And this is the nature of the rhythm of being human, in some sense. We're continually in these cycles of contraction and expansion, cycles of happiness and unhappiness, of fallow, of fruit, of pain, of pleasure, of hooked, of free. And this, you'll see this so frequently as you meditate. Your mind is just, it's, it's open, it's awake, and then it gets hooked, something grabs it, but then it unhooks. It's like we get, we're walking, I was just walking in the desert and I got caught on some brambles and it's, that's it, that's what happens, our mind gets caught on brambles and then somehow through the practice, through the mindfulness, through the metta, we begin to unhook it and then we get free and then we can walk until the next time we walk into another set of brambles, which will happen because that's life. Someone came in today and they said they saw someone crying. And when they saw someone crying, they went into this great feeling of joy. I'm sorry, not joy. <laughs> great feeling. I don't know why I just said that. <laughs> sorry. She went into this experience of great compassion for the person who was crying. And she just felt so much compassion. And she walked away feeling all this compassion, and she walked over to her walking spot, and somebody was in it. <laughs> and the next thing she knew, what are they doing in my walking spot? Now, how did that happen? How did she go from great compassion, not joy, to, um, to being hooked, being contracted in a matter of seconds? This is what our mind does. But then we get free, and that is the promise of this practice the promise that we can get free again and again because life will present us with stuff. And then there'll be more and more moments of freedom. And then the old things that hooked us a lot will not hook us as often or they'll hook us for shorter periods of time. We shift and we change and our whole being can shift through these practices. This... Um, Someone once sent me this note. The layer of grief and fear I was written, uh, sorry, the layer of grief and fear I was within yesterday has dissolved. So this was someone who was struggling quite a bit on the retreat with lots of grief and fear. 
The layer of grief and fear I was within yesterday has dissolved. Today I'm here with the simple task of being present with my breath, my body, my wild mind, and the discipline and the process. And within this container, joy is arising and falling away and arising and falling away. I think it so beautifully expresses this process we're in. So as we do this loving-kindness practice, I've been focusing mostly on starting with ourselves. And then working with others, it has the same principles. You start, you make contact with the person and maybe with the feeling that's already present to a certain degree. You, um, you encourage it through phrases or whatever works for you. You notice the impact, sensing into your body what's happening as I make, as I send metta to my friend, as I send it to my benefactor, as I send it to the mailman or whoever it is. What is the experience I'm having inside myself? And then you can allow it to expand. So this practice can be a wonderful tool for working with people that we have difficulties with. There's a famous um, quote from the the Hindu saint, shall we say, Nisargadatta, who said, um, someone said to him, I've been having such a hard time with my mother. She's so difficult. She won't let me love her. And he said, she can't stop you. And I said, think about it. (laughs) When we, we often put ourselves up as um, like at the mercy of other people, at the mercy, I can't love them because they're this. I can't love them because I don't agree with their political philosophy or policy or something. What if we were to work on transforming our heart? And not because we're necessarily expecting something to happen with them, that they're going to change, although they might, but mostly because we're interested in having a heart that's happy and joyous, free, a heart that is connected and loving, And we can cultivate it. We can make this happen. Some people, on the other hand, find it's tremendously easy to send loving kindness to everybody except themselves. You know, you can send it even to the people you hate, but I can't send it to me. I guess if you hate them, maybe you don't. I mean, if you send loving kindness and you hate them, maybe you don't hate them. Anyway, I don't don't want to get into it. Um, So we can go with what's easy. We can start where it's easy. We can send loving kindness to those, to our, to our loved ones, to children, to partners, to, to our dog, to wherever it's easy. Or if you want to challenge yourselves, I really want to work on this person. I'm going to every day send it to this difficult friend, this person I've been in, in a fight with for years and years, and see what happens. It's all, it's so interesting, really, this practice. As we purify, as we, as we sort of see more and more what is in the way of loving. What is in the way of loving? The best thing to do when you're working with someone that's difficult is remember everyone wants to be happy. Even the people you really can't stand. They want to be happy. And they're doing what they think they need to do in order to be happy. And that's why they're doing it. Now you may not agree with what they're doing, you may fight against it. Metta isn't, isn't this paralysis of, oh, everything's good, I love them. You know, that's not what it is. It's a connected feeling. Can we, can we connect with people in all different, all different kinds of people? And this is just, it's, it's, a, it's a practice. It's not, um, it's not something that we can do immediately, necessarily, overnight. Uh, the... Neem Karoli Baba, another Hindu saint, said, never throw anyone out of your heart. Such a beautiful phrase. People often ask, does it affect someone if you do metta for them? And there's been all sorts of research around prayer and long-distance prayer, and does it affect them? And I think the results are actually inconclusive. (laughs) We don't know. (laughs) 
But um, what we do know are a couple of things. We know that if you meet a person who seems to be filled with love and kindness and compassion, you feel pretty good. I mean, it's just very obvious. It's very intuitively obvious. We also know that as you do this practice, you get transformed. And through that transformation internally, it's going to have rippling effects on everyone and everything you encounter. There's a practice I've been doing recently that I just love, and I'll share it with you, which is that whenever I'm feeling a certain kind of um, self-pity or grief or anxiety about something or just feeling bad, I stop and I take a moment and I breathe in everyone around the world that I can imagine who's feeling that same grief, or anxiety, or self-pity at that moment. So I just stop, and I just kind of take a breath. And when I do it, it's like the self-pity completely trans... Not always, but it can transform. It can transform. My heart begins to open to more compassion to others. It's a great practice. Joanna Macy, the the, um, Buddhist and ecologist, she says this, In the cosmic canopy of Indra's net, each of us, each jewel at each node of the net, reflects all the others and reflects the others reflecting back. So you have to imagine what's called the great jeweled net of Indra, which is, um, it's to demonstrate how interconnected we are. And there's points of uh, jewels at every nexus point of the net. And each of those jewels represents the millions of beings, and we're all connected through this net of, of Indra. So that is what we find when we listen to the sounds of the earth crying within us, that the tears that arise are not ours alone. They are the tears of, of an Iraqi mother looking for her children in the rubble. They are the tears of a Navajo uranium miner learning that he's dying of lung cancer. We find we are interwoven threads in the intricate tapestry of life, its deep ecology. That particular practice connects me so much to that when I, when I really, when it, you know, oftentimes I do it and not much happens, but when I do get it, oh, wow, there's so many people right now in this moment who are suffering from knee pain. I'm not the only one, you know? So over time, metta becomes more and more really the ground of our being. You know, of course we still get angry and, you know, upset and anxious. All those things happen. But it seems that the people who I know who have been practicing it for a long time and been practicing the mindfulness as well tend to be, you know, get over things a little bit faster notice themselves, have this disidentification, have this sense of like a default. The default becomes the loving kindness rather than the self-hatred we talked about earlier. And we begin to find a kind of fearlessness. The metta, metta in a sense protects us. It becomes a protection because our mind feels very strong because there's a lot of happiness in it, a lot of joy and connection. And it's almost like there's this creation of this ocean of metta that can hold everything. It's like our whole being becomes this ocean. And in this ocean, anything can get thrown in it, but it just dissolves into the ocean of metta. And I was struck by, I forget who said it up here, but that that someone was saying, reminding us that the desert out there was once an ocean. And I always feel whenever I come to Yucca Valley that whatever anybody's going through, myself included, this desert is so vast and it can hold anything. And that's what we're cultivating. We're cultivating that quality through the mindfulness, through the loving kindness, to have a mind that's big enough, and heart, mind, heart, body, everything, that's big enough to hold whatever we encounter so that nothing is rejected. Our hearts are big, they're open. 
And we become in touch with that radiant nature, that quality of our heart of mind that's open and spacious and okay, just whatever it is. And when you're going through a hard day, you're going through a hard day. But underneath there's this sense like it'll be okay. We can have that. We can have that sense. Pama Chodron says, when you begin to touch your heart, or let your heart be touched, you begin to discover that it's bottomless, that it doesn't have any resolution, that this heart is huge and vast and limitless, and you discover how much warmth and gentleness is there, as well as how much space. The last thing that I'll say is that um, is that loving kindness and mindfulness and all of these practices we're doing here, they're not selfish practices. They're not just about me, me, me. They're so connected to our world. And I said earlier, as we practice, it influences every single person and thing that we come in contact with, everyone that we touch. It changes. Who, it changes, our change changes others. There's so much connection between us and the world. And we become more equipped to serve. This is um, the poet, um, who I'm sure his name I'm not saying right, but anyway, Cheslo Miloch. He says, Love means to learn to look at yourself the way one looks at distant things. For you are only one thing among many, and whoever sees the way heals his heart without knowing it from various ills. And then he wants to use himself and things so that they stand in the glow of ripeness. It doesn't matter whether he knows what he serves. Who serves best doesn't always understand. We move from the sort of... The more that we practice, the more that compassion and kindness and self-love is cultivated within us, the more there's a natural flow outward into the world. People just want to express it. And in some ways, we can talk about generosity as being the physical outward manifestation of loving kindness. So we can serve, we can be generous, we can work towards change in the world from this place of love. There's another great old story about um, a teacher of Jack's and Carol's and maybe Howie, several, of, several people, Deepa Ma, who was this wonderful Indian woman who was supposed to have a mind that was so profoundly realized that all that was in it was metta and concentration. And I think one other thing, but I can't remember. Um, <laughs> And um, peace, peace, <laughs> good stuff, yeah. And she was, um, when she was living in Calcutta, she, she, grew, she lived in the kind of slum area of Calcutta. She moved into this particular slum. And before she moved in, it was just filled with all this strife, and there was, there was petty thievery going on. Nobody trusted each other. They hated each other. She moved in. And she just started sending metta out. She was just emanating the metta. And as she emanated the metta, there began to be transformations. Neighbors started talking to each other. People started enjoying each other. They started having, um, you know, I don't know, neighborhood barbecues or something. But, <laughs> but what, and this is, a, it's kind of a legend, but it really speaks to the possibility of what one person with, the, with metta can do, can transform a whole neighborhood. And that neighborhood can transform a society and a culture. And that if, as we act from a place of loving kindness and connectedness and mindfulness, we can go out into the world and make change happen from that place. The Buddha, as we've said several times, said hatred will never cease with hatred. Only by love will hatred cease. This is the eternal law. So when Nelson Mandela, who was in prison for, what, 27 years, something like that, um, 
when he was finally um, ha- was inaugurated as um, the head of South Africa, he did something that really shocked a lot of people. He invited his his captors to his inauguration. So he invited the guards and he invited the um, some of the people who had imprisoned him. And I mean, it was it was a pretty big deal. And some people went up to him and said, "Why did you do that? Didn't you hate these people?" And he replied. Of course I did. They tortured me. They stole the best years of my life. They kept me from my family. Of course I hated them. But on the day that I walked out of that jail cell, I knew that if I continued to hate them, I would still be in prison. So let's just sit for a while. Hafiz. O wondrous creatures, by what strange miracle do you so often not smile? This talk was given by Diana Winston at Yucca Valley on April 17, 2007. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive.